This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The book of Hebrews was written in the mid-60s of the first century to a predominantly Jewish Christian congregation that was facing social pressure to turn away from Christ and the new covenant and to turn back to Moses, the old covenant, and to types and shadows. The pastor writing to the congregation has been urging them to pay attention to the types and shadows and to the testimony of ancient believers because they all pointed to Christ as the reality that was promised. With this episode, we bring to close our series on Hebrews. Thanks to the faculty for going the extra mile and to our editor, Nick Davis, for his excellent work on these episodes. Today we're in chapter 13, and here to help us see how Hebrews brings this sermon to a close, Steve Baugh joins us. He's professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, where he's taught since 1983. He's author of two Greek grammars, and he's a contributor to the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. These volumes and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Steve, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you very much, Scott. Well, here we are in chapter 13, and we'll get right to it because we have some work to do today. And verse 1 says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We'll stop there and let you get us oriented to the chapter and to the first few verses. The end of chapter 12 has really lifted us into heaven and shown us that our inheritance is in an unshakable kingdom. And he concludes chapter 12 by saying, let us therefore be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. How do we express our gratitude to God for his free salvation? Well, he starts unpacking that briefly here with a sketch of our upright, holy life flowing out of Christ's redemption of us in chapter 13. We might call this the end of the sermon. There's been application, if you will, of the sermon all the way through, but he makes some particular points here, and we'll get to that in a moment. But in general, how does this chapter help us see some of the challenges that they were facing as a congregation? What kinds of pressures were they facing? For example, verse 3, I'm thinking of, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. He does indicate here that the congregation has been suffering persecution for Christ's sake. You know, being in prison usually is not a long-term situation, but an anticipation of a worse punishment that would follow. And this is really where you see the congregation is facing slander. They're facing confiscation of their goods, he's spoken of earlier. And here, some are in prison. These are people in prison who are members of the body of Christ. And so he wants us to recall our life really is not wrapped up here on earth, but we care for one another. We love one another. We take care of each other here on earth because we are united in Christ together in our pilgrimage. What do you make of the exhortation to be hospitable because some have entertained angels? I like it. <laughs> okay, that's good. I don't think I've had any angels at Lazy Bee Ranch, but uh, you never know. <laughs> no, it, it's really a reference back to the Old Testament. I think uh, you see the hospitality that uh, Abraham had of three strangers. It turned out two were angels, and one was the appearance of Christ, uh, really, before his incarnation. So you have just a reference that hospitality is 
to characterize our lives. Strangers in particular, because we too are strangers here on Earth, and we have compassion on those who really have no homeland here. And you never know, not just entertaining angels, but you never know whom you will help to share the love of Christ and to help others who are homeless here on earth to find a heavenly homeland. So it's really extension of the gospel to the unbelieving as well. And two things come to mind right away. One, when in Genesis 16 and elsewhere, believers entertained what the Hebrew Bible calls the Malach Yahweh or the angel of the Lord, it turns out, as you indicated a moment ago, it was God the Son who had taken on a form, manifested himself in a sort of a human form, and figures in the Old Testament in the broad sense of the word came to realize that this wasn't just anyone. This was a very special figure, and they render worship to this figure. And it's interesting that he invokes that instance or those instances as a motivation for us to be hospitable, particularly to brothers and sisters, because when we do, by implication, aren't we also, in a sense, entertaining Christ? Well, this is precisely what Christ says, isn't it? Where he says that on the last day, he will tell people, you have shared with me a cup of water. Believers in Christ will say, well, when did we ever share a cup of water with you, Lord. And he says, when you shared it with the least of these, my little ones. So he is with us and he cares for us. He identifies with us. So we care for one another because we love Christ and Christ takes it personally. He looks at our free, grateful offer of our holy lives to him as something offered as a sacrifice to him, which Hebrews actually says more explicitly later in chapter 13. And no book in the New Testament is more interested in us being heavenly minded. And yet, at the same time, it has implications for the way that we live our life here on earth. And so the pastor to the Hebrews doesn't make a bifurcation between being seated in the heavenlies and living out the Christian life according to the revealed will of God in Scripture, in the love of Christ, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the life of sanctification. For him, these two things are pretty intimately connected. Absolutely. And you find this throughout the Scripture, most prominently 1 Corinthians 7, similar to what we have here about the honoring marriage and the marriage bed. Paul also is dealing with people who think that our identity with Christ and the high heavenlies and our life being hidden there, we really being heavenly people now, annuls the idea of us keeping our earthly bodies pure, holding fast to the creation ordinances like marriage. So Paul had to deal with that error. Likewise, Hebrews deals with the error that's implicit that because we're really identified with the new kingdom that we inherit that cannot be shaken, we can just ignore the fact that we still do live here on earth and the structures of God that is implanted into this creation still continue and we are to honor those institutions like marriage. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Therefore, he says then in verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage be be undefiled. And so the seventh commandment still norms the life of believers, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so when we face persecution and trouble, that's no license to commit immorality or to ignore the moral implications of the Christian faith. goes on to say in verse 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, and hearing quotes Psalm 118, and he's been applying and quoting and alluding to the Hebrew scriptures through this sermon, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So that's an interesting quotation in light of what they've been experiencing. 
Yeah, I'd like to get into this a little bit more. There are actually several things that are worth exploring here. This is a very deep little bit of scripture, actually. The first thing to notice is in verse 5. It's already implied in verse 4, but it's explicit in verse 5. That when we think about morality and how we serve the Lord, there are two things. There are two sides. There's the negative, what we should avoid doing, and then there's positively things we should replace it with. So that if you're struggling with one side of this, you should focus on the other. Namely, keep your life free from the love of money. That's the negative. Don't do that. But positively, you replace it with contentment. So if you're struggling with that sin, you focus on contentment. Because notice that being content with what you have is fulfilling and positive and can replace that eager desire to attain worldly goods. And so you replace sin with something positive that corresponds with it. Our uh, catechism, for example, the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms, talk about the commandments of God on both sides. What does it prevent? What does the uh, commandment of God forbid? But then what does it enjoin us to do? What does it command us to do instead? So we see that here, for example. But there's something else further, if I can go on. In this quotation, I will never leave nor forsake you, is from Deuteronomy 31. If I can, I'd like to read that. There's actually two places where that's stated in Deuteronomy 31. The first one I want to read, it's uh, Moses speaking in the Lord's name to Israel. And he says this, And the Lord will give them over to you, the Canaanites. You shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, the Canaanites. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And that phrase, the Lord your God, is behind everything. We call it the covenant formula. God has bound himself to us. He is our God. And there are just these massive implications of that. So Hebrews is really teasing out what he said all along. God is our God. Therefore, he will not leave or forsake us. And that's covenantal language, isn't it? Absolutely. God said, I will be a God to you and to your seed, your offspring after you. I will not leave you. And so the ground of being obedient, of being thankful, of submitting to difficult providences is knowing that he hasn't left us. Whereas when you're being pressured, when you're being ostracized, however you're suffering for the faith, the temptation is to think that God has gone away and left us alone. And twice here then in this section, he says in different ways, as you say, quoting from Deuteronomy and then quoting from Psalm 118, he reminds us that Yahweh, the Lord, is my helper. I will not fear. And what can man do to me? So man can arrest me, man can harass me, man can mock me for my faith, but ultimately man can't separate me from God. No, once you say covenant, you're talking about a solemn bond. And God has staked his oath upon being committed to us. That's what we've read in Hebrews so far. This covenant bond, I will be your God, you will be my people, and therefore I will never leave you nor forsake you, is sealed by the blood of Christ, by the life of God, by his own swearing these things are true. So we have as sure of a promise as conceivable for the truth of these things. But let me point out one other thing with this. He takes that passage from Deuteronomy 31, which was applied to national Israel, the Old Testament church, and applies it to us, the New Testament church, because in Christ Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen, quoting from 2 Corinthians. 
That's a really important point because it is frequently held and thought by sincere Bible-believing Christians that now that we're in the New Covenant, everything has changed, and yet here we see the pastor to the Hebrews drawing strong lines of continuity between the New Covenant community and the Israelites, and not only that, we're seeing him essentially paraphrasing at least part of the Ten Commandments. And there are some who say, well, the law that God gave to Israel at Sinai, that's not the moral law, the Ten Commandments. That's not for us now in the New Covenant. And here, arguably, Hebrews is a sermon or the epistle of the New Covenant. And so, if that's the case and he's done what he's done, then Christians need to think differently about our continuity with Israel and with the Ten Commandments. That's entirely correct, because the glue holding that whole point together is the continuity of the covenant of grace, Old Testament and New Testament, which Hebrews undergirds and says explicitly many times. There's one more thing I'd like to add. You also read in verse 6, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? If you read through Hebrews with this in mind, notice how Hebrews understands who's speaking in the Old Testament. It's fascinating because you have the three persons of the Trinity speaking with one another. As the Father says to the Son, the Son to the Father, the Spirit testifies to us, and just the Spirit speaks through various places. But here, uniquely and interestingly, from the Psalm 118, now God puts words in our mouth. And it's important that we realize the words of that psalm were given to us that we may embrace it as what we confess. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We should embed that in our hearts. We should take that as God providing us what to say at time of trouble. Maybe even sing it in worship. God's people have been known to sing psalms. I'm sorry, that's pretty radical. <laughs> I don't, I don't believe we should ever sing the Psalms. <laughs> I'm kidding. Of course. And wouldn't that be a, an edifying thing to do? It would be an edifying thing to do. And, uh, you know, Psalm 118 is part of a section that actually Jesus and the disciples sang just before his crucifixion. Yeah, one of the Hallel Psalms. Yes, that's right. So we'll move on to verse 7 with another exhortation, and we'll try to connect this all together. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Another very rich passage, three things to point out that are most profound also, as we've seen throughout Hebrews. First, verse 7 connects with verse 17. Obey your leaders. He connects those two ideas. But you remember your leaders, but notice the leaders are implicitly exhorted here because it says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So leaders are to be exemplary. Leaders are to be upright. Leaders are not just to teach, but also to live Christianity. That's the first point. And 
their leaders, you see, are speaking the Word of God. They're teaching the people of God what to believe. Imitating their faith, they also believe these things. And then the focus is verse 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. What they taught about Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago is the same doctrine that we must teach today because Christ is the same. That's the point of verse 8, is Christ doesn't change. So the apostles laid down our faith. That doesn't change. We don't have to improve on it. We don't have to add to it, discover that Jesus is really not quite what they conceived. This is why we're committed to the Word of God, the Scriptures, because they contain this Jesus Christ and teaching about him. He himself provides this Word because it's the Word of God. God himself speaks through these things. And then finally, this business about eating the bodies of animals whose blood is brought into the... I really prefer in verse 11 to render that the most holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin. When you read the Old Testament background of that in Leviticus, it's about the Day of Atonement sacrifice. He's talking about Christ offering a sacrifice of himself once for all. Because what happened in that sacrifice in Leviticus is the high priest would take the fat and blood of a bull and goat that was used to cover the sins of the people and offer it in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. But the bodies of those animals were taken outside the gates and burned. Well, Christ has gone outside the gate in the sense of no longer being a part of the old covenant, but introducing the new. The old covenant was the shadows, the types, the prefigurement. Christ is the reality. That's why he's making that point. Outside the gate means you don't have to go to Jerusalem to offer a real sacrifice. You go to Christ, there's the real sacrifice. It's not in the temple in Jerusalem anymore. It's in the high uh, heavenly tabernacle. That's what Hebrews has been saying. That's why he concludes with this here. And if Martin Luther were reading this, and we know he did, he he would tell us, too, as would Calvin and other of the Protestants, that this doctrine that Jesus suffered outside the city gates is what they would have called the theology of the cross, that the Savior who redeemed us did so in shame, not that he was morally worthy of any shame, but that he was placed outside the city where things were unclean, where the rubbish went. But it also says in Leviticus, you're to burn the dung of those animals outside because it makes the inner place unclean. So you're burning those things which are unclean. Thank you. That's exactly where I wanted to go, that Jesus went to the place of unclean things, and he became unclean for us, that in him we might be clean. And so when Hebrews says that we are to go outside the city, it means that we're to embrace suffering, we're to embrace the shame of Christ and his cross, despite the fact that people, you know, mock and ridicule. It seems to me there's some really important ideas embedded in this notion of going to Christ outside the city who became our sacrifice for us. And not trying to build a kingdom here on earth, Mm. a uh, place where a new kind of temple where we can offer sacrifices. Notice where he takes us in verse 15 and 16. Sacrifice of praise to God. Don't neglect to do good, but to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We have one sacrifice alone, and that's the sacrifice of Christ. After he has offered himself to sanctify us outside the gate, we have no more animal sacrifice to offer, not even the sacrifice of the mass. That is a false teaching, and the book of Hebrews undermines that teaching, explicitly rejects it. Our sacrifice is praise to God and service to him, verse 16, not neglecting to do good, sharing with what you have. That's a sacrifice pleasing to God. That's where our sacrifices that we provide are, not animals, 
not some sort of action that we do that provides atonement. Our whole, every sin we have ever committed or will ever commit has been dealt with by Christ on the cross. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. It's not to be repeated. That is, that sacrifice is once for all not to be repeated. It's not even to be repeated as a memorial or a bloodless sacrifice as the Roman communion teaches. And so we can connect that back to verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. We might add to that, you know, man-made rules. We don't need to go back. And one of the things that the medieval church did that Rome has continued is to reinstitute gradually the mosaic economy in terms of sacrifices. That's why we have ministers and not priests. That's absolutely right. Ministers never turn their back on the congregation, as Roman priests used to do anyway, before Vatican II, and they don't lift up their hands, they don't consecrate an offering, and they don't make a memorial propitiatory sacrifice which is important. Jesus is that propitiatory, that wrath-turning sacrifice once for all. The leaders, just restricting to this chapter, notice what the leaders do. They speak the Word of God. They're ministers of the Word of God. And then in verse 17, they're shepherds of the souls of their people. They pray for, they visit, they help, they counsel, they bring the Word of God to people, but they don't provide a sacrifice for them as a priest would. That's already been done by our great high priest who offered the once-for-all sacrifice. And we're quoting Hebrews. Once for all, he says it several times. Let's think just for a minute, and then we'll move on to the next section about verse 14, because we touched on it, but it's a really important doctrine here that's embedded. For here we have, that is this life, earth, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Isn't that interesting how he's been talking about this life, this world, all the things that are important that we are to do, but they're grounded in the reality that in this life we do not have an abiding city, that we're seeking a heavenly city. And so we do these two things simultaneously, right? We don't have to choose. Sometimes we've been tempted to try to set up a heavenly city on the earth, right? Some of the Anabaptists in the early 16th century talked that way, and there are evangelicals who sometimes talk that way now. This uh, verse is just continuing what he told us in chapter 11 and chapter 12. Really the whole epistle that we're pilgrims on this earth, but we do have a city. We do have a place. We are not homeless. We are pilgrims 
with a home that's not of this creation. But we don't reject this creation as worthless. It's made by God for good. But it is not our final homeland. It never was. Not even Abraham thought that he was inheriting Canaan as his ultimate rest. He heard the promises. He was forced to del- uh, he was forced to wait for the fulfillment of those promises. Never did inherit them on earth because he saw and longed for a city not made by hands that God has prepared for him. He just refers back to that in verse 14 of chapter 13. It's the same teaching, but as you say, it doesn't mean we reject our life in this world as worthless. Just the opposite. It gives our life in this world meaning. We're offering a sacrifice to God here on earth by taking these things on earth, the good things we can share, the love we can show, the sacrifices of praise to God are worthwhile things because we do have a city. Yeah, thank you. Verse 17, we've already touched on, so we'll move on to verse 18. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is really flowing out of what he says in verse 17 about obeying leaders. Leaders in the church are not infallible. They need the prayers of the saints. They need the concern and care of the people they are responsible for. And yet, they are people who have to act uprightly in a good conscience. Here, particularly in verse 19, he longs for them because he loves them. I had time with a pastor recently of a congregation. I was speaking in another city and I had such a wonderful experience. And this pastor had a difficult ministry. It was a small community. He would never have a huge church in this community. There just weren't that many people. But he said something that is most profound. He said a pastor has to love his people. And he said it with such passion. Even people who are difficult to love, he loves them. And I think that is expressly stated here, that pastors really need to love their people. And when that happens, the people have to love their pastor as well. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Shepherds don't get to always select their sheep. We don't have, as Dr. Bergsman used to say, the select of the elect. The benediction then towards the end of the chapter, starting in verse 20, when you and I were discussing this, so I'm looking forward to this. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen you're right to call this a benediction notice how he concludes it with amen once you see that amen you should see that he's expressing really not just a prayer but a benediction so it is something to call upon god to place his name on his people to he provides here a wonderful model of the basis for that blessing. I have to tell a story on myself. I actually was going to be preaching through Hebrews. I skipped ahead to this section, Hebrews 13, 20 through 21, because I thought, now this is a very pleasant passage and easy to understand, so I won't have to prepare very hard for this sermon. <laughs> we always tell ourselves that, don't we? We do. And it turned out, uh, I when I looked at this, I panicked because I thought, I have no idea what he means by this phrase, by the blood of the eternal covenant. And it really took me aback that it it looks so easy to understand, but when you think about it explicitly and carefully, it doesn't make any sense in translation. How is it that God led up Jesus from the dead by blood? (laughs) 
It just makes no sense. And it turns out a little bit of study showed that this phrase and this word rendered by really should better be rendered by virtue of. It has that meaning elsewhere, and I think it has the meaning here. And it makes perfect sense now. The God of peace led up our shepherd by virtue of the blood of the covenant that he shed. And really what it's talking about is Christ was worthy of being brought back from the dead in resurrection. He merited resurrection for himself by his uprightness and fulfilling the divine command to provide the blood that would bring the forgiveness of sins for God's people. Just a moment ago, you used the word merit. Why did you use that, and how does that fit with this passage? That is what the author says with this phrase in our translations, by the blood of the eternal covenant, but I think it can and should be rendered by virtue of the blood of the eternal covenant. It expresses that because he provided the sacrifice for our sins with his own blood once for all, it was meritorious. It was the requirement that God had laid down for him. He was obligated to fulfill that, and it was blood that was worthy of covering the sins of all of God's people from the beginning of the world until its close, every single one of us. And that's why he was, as the author actually more quaintly says, led up from the dead as the great shepherd. See, he he uses this phrase, led up from the dead. It's God shepherding the great shepherd. And so it's a wonderful image of uh, resurrection as bringing our shepherd forward because he's worthy of his being exalted beyond the heavens. He has fulfilled the task that the Father has given him. I'm really just referring now to John 17, where it says that. And that's why we can hear this benediction and be confident that he will equip us with every good thing to do his will. He is our shepherd. He leads us and provides for us. And the foundation of that provision is the merit of his sacrifice on the cross once for all for us to seal an eternal covenant. It's a covenant which will not be replaced. It will not change. It is a lasting forever in its benefits. The only merits that Hebrews knows about are Christ's merits earned for us. And in medieval terms, these are condign merits. These are fully, intrinsically, inherently worthy merits. And it doesn't know anything about congruent merit. That is, that which does not meet justice, which God nevertheless wills to regard as fully worthy. And the only thing that's imputed to us is Christ's perfect merit. It's that merit by which we stand. And so he doesn't know anything about the merits of saints, the merits of the Blessed Virgin. He doesn't know anything about a treasury of merits to which Christians add and from which Christians withdraw. He only knows about Jesus' perfection, his righteousness, his worthiness, which is credited to us. As we come to the close of Hebrews, it seems like an apt place to make that sort of fine point, if you will. I agree with that entirely, and I think that's exactly what Hebrews is doing. I would encourage our listeners to turn to John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, and notice the flow of Christ's thought. He will give eternal life to his people because he has finished the task that the Father has given him to do. There's the merit. He has finished the task. He has accomplished it. And because of that, he turns now to the Father and says, so now, 
In consequence of that, Father, glorify me in your presence. He has earned the glory, the exaltation as the incarnate Son, who will now intervene for us with an eternal intervention and intercession to provide everything we need based on his own merit and glory and goodness. And then at the end of the sermon, having given the benediction and closed the service, as it were, there's a little a bit of epistolary business, the final greetings. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Now, we've touched on this in earlier episodes. Dennis Johnson has walked us through some of this, but maybe reflect on the way he regards them and then the fact that he closes with this word of grace and he combines that with the word of exhortation. Well, this is, as Dennis Johnson has convinced me, as well as teaches plainly, this is a sermon, the equivalent of a modern sermon, really. To us, it doesn't look very brief because we tend to read it verse by verse and slowly, maybe over a period of time. But if you sat down to just read it through in sequence, it would take about 45 minutes to read. It's really not that long. There was a near contemporary Roman author who talks about giving a seven-hour speech uh, <laughs> in the the Roman Senate, and he was uh, thankful that none of the senators fell asleep during his talk, and they all seemed to attend for those seven hours. So long speeches were pretty typical in the ancient world. But here he shows this is truly a letter written to real people. He knows Timothy, so he's acquainted with Paul, I believe, in that circle, but I don't think it is Paul. This is not how Paul would speak about Timothy as his brother. Rather, he would say, my son Timothy, I think. But then he warmly tells them how he longs to see them and hopes to see them soon. But then, as you say, he ends with really the most appropriate word for the whole book, grace. Grace for Hebrews is the favor of God to those who do not deserve it. May grace be upon us all. Amen. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.